0: Welcome, all you loyal listeners to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, all you happy warriors, you heroic men, enduring the scorching days of summer and the frigid days of winter, you who go to work early every morning, regardless of the weather, you take care of your business and you do what your head tells you to do when your head tells you it must be done. You who ignore your heart's desire to indulge the body's seductive whisper. Instead, you heroic and happy warriors boldly heed the clarion call of responsibility to those that you are strong enough to support and brave enough to care for. You belong to the army of the righteous. You are the noble knights defending the fortress of civilization against the hungry hordes of scheming and surging savages trying to invade and conquer everything that you and your fathers before you have built. Those barbarians know that even after they destroy the civilization you built, as they wretchedly crawl through its wrecked ruins, they will still live better than in anything they could ever have built themselves. Only you stand between the nightmare of socialistic slavery and the bright hope of tomorrow. And you beautiful and brave women, resisting government's treacherous proposal to marry it, rather than accepting a golden ring from one clear-eyed man dreaming of a shared tomorrow with you. You gorgeously courageous women who smilingly and graciously carry the load of work, marriage and family, inspiring your man to greatness and nurturing your young ones to moral maturity, as well as physical. Yes, you men and women, you happy warriors who do all this and so much more, you are the natural audience of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. You are the audience I devotedly serve, recognizing that every day that I can bring you the helpful, life-affirming insights of ancient Jewish wisdom, well, that is another day of privilege for me. It is indeed my honor to serve you all and my delight to welcome you to another episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Yes, that's right. This is, as far as I know, the only show in the entire digital universe that reveals how the world really works. Let me tell you another way to identify happy warriors. Happy warriors, all of us, are people who can hear sad news, and sometimes bad news, without flinching, uh, without falling apart and collapsing, without losing our determination, and without losing our grip on reality. We're capable of doing all that, and so it is without trepidation that I prepare to share with you a sad piece of information. Here it is. The sad piece of information is that truth is ultimately verified by the passage of time. Now, that means that if you could live for a thousand years, by the time you were in your late middle age, you'd be pretty smart because you will have seen a whole lot pass by. Now, the sad reality is that we're not living for a thousand years. And so, because of limited human lifespan, intergenerational connection, parents to children, grandparents to grandchildren, teachers to students, all of that becomes absolutely essential. Children who are never introduced to the culture of their parents, the culture of their families, the culture of their society and of their country, well, those children end up as tragic orphans of time. Under those sad circumstances, each child becomes an adult excruciatingly isolated from everything that went before, disconnected from his history, disconnected from all real knowledge, disconnected from a timeless vision that has sustained his people for generations. Above all, disconnected from the slowly accumulated wisdom of the ages. And my dear friends, I'm talking about today. This is the dangerous and tragic fate of a frighteningly large proportion of today's teenagers in many countries. Orphans in time. These young people become terrifyingly vulnerable to the lies, distortions, and propaganda promulgated by their elders for their own reasons. Just imagine, if you would, culturally connected young people who would therefore be able to add the life experiences of their parents and of their grandparents to their own far shorter set of life knowledge. Such young people could never fall prey to the nonsensical notion, for instance, that skin color is destiny, or the equally puerile proposition that you can change your gender. Young people who get how the world really works would know that inequality with freedom is far preferable to equality imposed by tyranny, and such young people would burst out into hysterical laughter at any college professor who tried to teach them differently. See, time just does tell the truth. Imagine a self anointed expert you know, many centuries ago pointing to the waning moon in the nighttime sky. And as that, that moon's crescent shrunk thinner and thinner until it became a sliver, a tiny sliver of a crescent, and then it vanishes forever and this expert tells young people see it's gone you you are among the lucky people who actually saw the moon but now it's gone forever and um, they his students might believe him for a short while but no sooner than they had have got accustomed to the dark moonless skies than the new moon would appear and gradually grow from its own sliver all the way to its full-size disk of brilliance in its timeless, repetitive cycle of grow and shrink. You see, as long as young people do not have a long timeline in their own life, because they're young, and they are incapable of being granted a longer timeline through the acculturation of their parents and families and grandparents and reliable teachers of truth, well, they become incredibly vulnerable, don't they? And the spurious ideas all around us, take far longer to debunk than just the few days of darkness before the new moon appears. And people who have no veneration for knowledge of the past, well, they're condemned to end up making some of the most important decisions in their lives on the basis of fake ideas and false assertions. It was once widely believed That removing blood from a sick person cured him. They used a procedure called cupping, whereby they heated a glass cup and then made a small incision in the skin, usually on the back, placed the cup over the incision tightly against the skin, and as the glass cooled and the air inside it cooled and contracted and shrank, the uh, shrinking gas or air inside the cup sucked blood out of the body. Um, doctors also used a, uh, a rather creepy creature called a leech. If you've ever had to wade through very swampy area, uh, you probably afterwards had to remove leeches from your waders, hopefully or else non-ideally from your skin. Uh, leeches actually draw blood out of the skin. It's, it's really horrible. But doctors used to use them because for a lengthy period of time, a good few years, doctors believed that removing blood cured sick people. Now, it was only the passage of time that revealed the futility and nonsensical aspect of this whole fake medical idea. But it's an example of the fact that all the knowledgeable, credentialed, uh, widely admired medical people of the day all believed that uh, cupping and leeching worked and practiced it. It was only the passage of much time that revealed that this achieves absolutely nothing. It was once believed, again by doctors, that uranium radiation was healthy, but again, within one generation or less, it became obvious that what was previously believed was just plain wrong. And although there was an initial appearance of good health on the part of those people who were given treatment deep below the earth in uranium mines, the passage of time showed that their skin and bones decayed, they, they, they lost their teeth, and eventually, with enough time doctors realized their horrible mistake, that exposure to radiation was toxic, not thaumaturgic. And so, the problem is that we have to live our lives in a time span that is often much shorter than the time necessary to reveal many beliefs as fake and false. For many years... American teachers insisted on teaching children to read by the whole language approach. During the 1980s, particularly in California, children were taught to read by whole language. Now, up until then, parents had taught their children to read phonetically. C-A-T, or more likely the way I probably said it when I was a kid, K-A-T spells cat. Now, I was somewhat prepared to struggle through the word catalog. However, the teaching establishment desperately desired to distinguish what they saw as their high level of credentialed professional expertise from what parents have done for generations namely, taught their children to read. And if even an untrained, uneducated, uncredentialed parent can teach their children to read, which they can, why would we need such highly paid teachers? Just as a a brief aside there, because I know that some of you listening are saying, highly paid teachers? How dare Rabbi Daniel Lappin say that? We all know that teachers are underpaid for this valuable function they're doing for society. How dare he say teachers are overpaid? Well, I'll tell you who says that. Not me. The market says it. There is no shortage of people eager to become teachers. So that tells me that the pay and packages and benefits that teachers get are pretty good for what's demanded of one in terms of uh, preparation and education, in terms of um, uh, skill and devotion and dedication and loss of time and health and dignity. All of these things are part of working for a living. The balance, apparently, in the teaching profession um, is pretty good because there's a long lineup of people trying to get into teachers' colleges in order to become teachers. So, that's what tells me that teachers are well paid. That was just by way of an aside. And so, uh, uh, what happened was that teachers, feeling that parents were making them look a little foolish because parents would teach children to read, and teachers often spent a, a year or more teaching children who hadn't had parental input, teaching those children to read. People used to say, hey, these children just are with their parents and they can read. How come you're spending a year or a year and a half teaching uh, incoming youngsters to read? And parents, uh, teachers then uh, started saying, parents, do not interfere with our job. You are harming your child by teaching your child to read. And by the way, many parents who themselves were culturally disconnected from the past. Parents who thought only in terms of the present and to some extent the future, but not at all the past, such parents fell into the trap and they stopped teaching their children to read. And teachers during the 80s, particularly in California, but also in in many, many so-called enlightened progressive states, uh, teachers introduced the whole Language. language system. They said, Don't ever teach your children the phonetic system of cat spells cat. No, they've got to learn the whole language system. And uh, they came up with a whole system that says the children have to learn their vocabulary a word at a time. Uh, The fact that they are taught to recognize the word cat in no way prepares them to recognize an entirely different arrangement of curves and lines, letters, spelling the word catalogue because this was going to be the whole language of a system of teaching. Anyway, anybody who had been open to the wisdom of the ages would have known that it was a doomed experiment. And eventually, after some years had passed, the educational establishment finally abandoned the whole language approach to early childhood education. Everyone was relieved, finally. Everyone except, of course, the children and their families who were the sad casualties of that cruel and callous experiment. I have to tell you, by the way, to this day, when I meet an adult with serious reading difficulties, a man or a woman who doesn't enjoy reading, somebody who doesn't do more reading than absolutely necessary someone who experienced challenges during their education, I sadly guess, hello, you attended elementary school probably during the early 1980s, right? And almost inevitably, these people were initially exposed to reading by the horrible attempt of whole language. Crazy idea! But because there were so many people who were orphans in time, so many people who'd had no exposure at all to the way your grandparents did it and the way your great-grandparents did it. Now, I'm going to explain in a little while that this isn't applicable for absolutely everything, okay? If your great-grandparents practiced cupping to get rid of a fever, I'm not suggesting you should copy them in that. I will be providing you with a distinction between the two types of knowledge. The type of knowledge where it makes a lot of sense to look backwards to the old and other knowledge that it makes much more sense to look forward to the modern. But um, another example, by the way, (coughs) uh, this I remember seeing in a magazine called Psychology Today. Uh, There was a period they ran an entire series of articles on the ideal spacing of children. And they came up with the right number of years between children is 3.7 years or three years and so many months. That's the right uh, division time. And countless parents who believe, they, they believe the pages of psychology today. And they, well, then they planned their families around those recommendations and it was only after many, by the way, also ideal family size. All of these things uh, were attempts on the part of the science of psychology, which to me is pretty much an oxymoron, because I don't think psychology is really a science, and I'll explain more of that later on. But um, what they did was made a huge number of people who in their own growing up had been determined to learn nothing from their parents and nothing from their grandparents and nothing from the culture of the family. And in many cases, by the way, the fault, I readily confess, is not just these people, but the fault lay with the parents and grandparents, who very often didn't fulfill their responsibility to provide acculturation, who failed to convey the wisdom of the ages. Sad. And again, the results were so sad because by the time enough time had passed by for people to say, you know what, we were wrong. We should never have listened to that advice, whether it was whole language or ideal child spacing <coughs> or anything else. Well, it was simply too late. How sad. Now, let me tell you a very good definition of a, an economic transaction. When somebody buys something from somebody else, what that really is, is a way for two complete strangers to interact with one another, and for both to leave happier than they were before. Do you not think that that makes God smile? That's right. One of my very few disappointments with the internet one of the things about the internet that I'm sad about is indeed the way it has killed the interaction between seller and buyer, between vendor and customer, between storekeeper and customer. Uh, I I used to like, and I still do when many, many circumstances present themselves, <clears throat> but it's wonderful to go into a store and to be treated to extraordinary customer service, when either the uh, the commission salesperson or the owner or a sell a salaried salesperson comes over, goes out of their way to find out exactly what you want and to help you to get it, and then at the end you hand the money over, you walk out with your your uh, acquisition, and they say, "Have a nice day," and you know what? It's it it is a happier day as a result of that. You encountered another one of God's children in a positive encounter that leaves you both happier than you were before because I think you'll agree that if a genie popped out of the bottle or more realistically a socialist official bureaucrat came and said I'm here to help you would you like to undo the transaction I would say to him, you're crazy. It took me a long time to find this thing I wanted at the right price. Get out of here. Well, he'd go to the storekeeper and offer the storekeeper, hey, should we get your customer back and undo that story? What are you talking about? I'm happy to exchange my inventory for cash. That's what my business is all about. What are you talking about? That shows that both are happier than they were before. And so transactions are great. Commerce is great, and so it is with little dismay that I remind you that uh, at my website, you right now, for less than the price of an elaborate cup of coffee at some national chain whose name will not be mentioned on the show until they become advertisers on the show, um, you can obtain a download of a, a, a an audio resource called Day for Atonement and it's it's a, it's a rather terrific little hour of insight it's how the world really works one of the things it points out is that um the uh, the, the the proven fact something that is unarguable is that there's a huge difference in recovery rates from serious diseases like heart and everything else. A huge difference in recovery rates between people who are spiritually in a good place as opposed to people in a spiritually bad place. People who are lonely and isolated do not recover as well. Right? This this you don't need me to tell you. It's well known. Um, people who are depressed do not recover as well as people who are happy. People who have a strong support of family and friend networks uh, wishing them well and helping speed their recovery, those people recover far better and far more quickly. Uh, one of the areas that is not so well known that impedes recovery is um, well for lack of a better word, let's call it self-loathing, the feeling that deep down you think to yourself, um, "I'm not, I'm not worth it. Um, I'm, I'm not worth what other people think I am. I'm not worth a recovery. I'm not." And, and people bring bad on themselves by feeling that they are morally unworthy. Now, this is a deep topic, and I can't deal with it in in 30 seconds, which is why we devoted an entire audio teaching to it called Day for Atonement. But anyways, uh, one of the really useful living strategies is atonement, in other words— overcoming your own internal feelings of worthlessness how do you do that it's not nearly as hard as it sounds but like making an omelette you kind of really do need to know how to do it otherwise you just end up with a mess so uh, head over to rabbi daniel lapin.com and uh there in the store. You look for Day for Atonement. The download is available right now for listeners of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, available at a special price. So, I am the storekeeper, you are the customer, and uh, you can go there if it is something that works, and after you read about it on my website, you read about it, you find it's something that would be useful to you or to... uh, any of your family members or friends, then go ahead and get it. And that way you will be happy. You won't want to undo the transaction, and neither will I. Two human beings made happier by the simple action of a purchase. And that's really one of the wonderful things about commerce. Uh, also on my website at com please feel free to join the mailing lists, subscribe to whichever of the weekly mailings you're interested in, Uh, or you might wish to communicate with Mrs. Lappin or myself, and you know that we welcome that as well. So head over to rabbidaniellappin.com. You know, in almost every area, socialism, leftism, secular fundamentalism, Uh, whatever you want to call it, it always identifies itself by ignoring, then mocking, and ultimately rejecting all wisdom of the past. One of the defining characteristics of liberalism, of far-left liberalism, is its revolutionary nature. Everything in the past has to go, right? You think of the French Revolution, talk of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But that is a part of lefty thinking. Uh, The past is to be rejected. One of the great questions that I enjoy posing to progressives is, tell me what the United States would have to look like for you to become a conservative. At what point will you say, hey, you know what, this is great. And it's so funny to watch progressives flounder as they struggle to find an answer. The answer is never. It is deeply embedded in the DNA of progressivism that we constantly have to be rejecting yesterday. Always get rid of the past. Okay, this is really important. Because once you see that the left has as part of its basic program it is to the left what oxygen and water are to the human being. The left ignores, mocks, and eventually rejects all wisdom of the past. Think about it. It is only in a left-wing environment, it's only under the progressive worldview, that the word young is a positive adjective right, as in a new young face in the U.S. Congress. How many times have you heard that? Oh, it's so wonderful to see these new young faces in the Congress. Let me tell you, in cultures that are less enthralled by leftism, leadership comes usually from a group of people we often call the elders, now, that sounds like a dated word in the, in the, uh, in the Western world today, but uh, I must tell you that in many parts of Africa, the continent from which I myself sprang, the leadership among a group of elders is perfectly normal and perfectly natural. That's right. Even think about the word senator, right? We have senators in the United States Congress, and you know we take the word from Roman senators, but where does it come from? The word senator is actually derived from the word old, as in the word senile. Now, I'm not suggesting that all senators are senile, of course. I'm speaking linguistically now rather than uh, um, making political uh, satire of any kind but the words s e the the letters s e n uh, actually do mean old um, there was a usage that was came across it was I, i've seen it in 19th century literature senicide 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 means the killing of old people and again there were some cultures that practiced this um, even the word senior is the same so once upon a time Uh, We thought of senators as being the elders, the seniors. Um, There was a perfectly sensible, perfectly natural, perfectly normal preference for older leaders. Why? Well, for one thing, they're more likely to have gained some knowledge and some real world experience, right? They are a little less likely to say foolish things think of some perhaps new young face in the United States House of Representatives right older people not always heaven knows i can i can certainly list some of the incredibly foolish and downright destructive things by said by older Um, members of Congress, Bernie Sanders, Ted Kennedy, uh, to name just two. So it's not that age is always a mark of wisdom and and goodness. No, I'm not saying that at all. But in general, in general, if you take a group of 70-year-old people and you take a group of 22-year-old people, the former group has seen more of life. In general, They are more likely to have a sense of how the world really works. And so, they always used to be the sensible preference for older leaders, the seniors, the elders, yes, the senators. Uh, They're also a little less likely to be susceptible to sexual foolishness of the Anthony Weiner kind another young politician, a fresh young face. Well, we saw considerably more than his fresh young face than we wanted to. Um, Older people, uh, ambition tends to be a little less vast, a little less unrestricted. When people reach an older age, very often, the ambition, the driving relentless forces that propel particularly men, for settle down just a little bit. Again, a useful thing to have in a leader. Bottom line, the bottom line is that the older you are, the more you've seen and the more wrong turns you've seen debunked. It is for this reason only that the Bible in Leviticus, listen to this, by the way, and again, I know many people in uh, the audience are um, lovers of the Bible. I also know there are many other people who don't care about it. But even if you don't care about the Bible, please, please, do not join that gang of ignoramuses, that huge number of people today in the West, who truly, as I like saying, cannot tell you whether Leviticus is a man's after shave lotion or an important book. So even if the Bible is of no great significance to you, at least be aware of what is in it. Because it is the oldest continuously published book in the history of the world. It is the book, well, I won't go into the extent to which it shaped Western civilization at the moment but uh, enough to quote Leviticus chapter 19 verse 32. Listen to what it says. You shall rise respectfully before the aged and show deference to the elderly. You shall fear your God. Interesting, isn't it? Why would the Bible care how we treat older people? What's that all about? And so important that it's linked to the fearing of God himself. Well, I'll tell you why. Because God did his children a huge favor. He didn't leave each generation to discover how the world works for itself, because if that would have been the case, we would still be living in caves and grass huts and still be cooking Uh, bison or uh, whatever it is over flames outside there would have been no human progress god gave us a gift number one he made it possible for intergenerational acculturation he made it possible for one generation to convey to the next everything it knows about how the world really works and he also gave us a book called the bible which, when understood through the lens of ancient Jewish wisdom, provides a detailed text on how the world really works. And so, one of the things is that the world really works better when there is a connection between generations. And if I don't respect my grandfather, why on earth would I bother to learn anything about the world from him? And so, God says as just as you fear God and respect God as the source of all wisdom, so you shall rise respectfully before the aged and show deference to the elderly, Leviticus 19.32, because they, through nothing else, even if they had no spirituality and no God connection and no biblical knowledge, nothing at all, simply through the passage of time. They know something that younger people don't. That's all. So it's not in any way a claim that older folks are brainier and older folks never make mistakes and older folks are always smart and perhaps wise. Look, some are and some conspicuously are not. No, Leviticus 19.32, it's just telling us that regardless of anything else, The older a person is, the more opportunity he's had to see folly gets its due reward. And so the Bible accords an old person all this honor and respect only because of the passage of time. The passage of time is really useful. See, we've all become so obsessed with young people and pretty people, good-looking people, It's really useful to remember the extent to which we are impacted by the culture around us. Uh, One of the most used words in marketing today is the word new, fresh. It's new, right? That's not necessarily an asset. It depends. We've all become so obsessed with youngness and youth, that would be, and prettiness. We're so intoxicated by the very latest and newest technology that we automatically ignore some of the wisdom of the ages. Let me give you an idea. Have you ever sat down and thought, "Yeah, what should I do? Maybe it's by yourself. I don't know what to do. I'm bored. You ever had that? Well, here's what you should do. And this you can do by yourself, or you can take your best friend forever, or you can take your spouse, or you can take a child, maybe your child or children, and now go and find an old person to talk to. Now let me warn you, initially you'll have to persuade them that you are really interested because they've had years and years getting used to being made to feel useless. I think you will unexpectedly enjoy a few of these encounters. The passage of time helps learn the truth, and it helps one become wiser. Look, as I said, if you could live for a thousand years, by the time you were in your seventh decade, you'd start becoming really wise. See, I'm telling you all of this only to try and convey to you the value of ancient Jewish wisdom. Ancient Jewish wisdom is nothing but the gathered wisdom of the ages. Now, up to now, uh, I'm talking primarily about all the advantages of a person acquiring a few years, becoming a senior citizen, and... uh, It's no mistake that in the Lord's language, in Hebrew, there is one word used for wise and also old. And that word is Zaken in Hebrew. And there are many times in Scripture where it means old people, or old person, or elder. Another time it means wise person. Uh, And so we're speaking about the benefits that accrue to years. But uh, there's a downside to the years also, I'm afraid. And any normal, sensitive human being who has lived, shall we say, a couple of decades past adolescence, for those of us in that situation, it's almost impossible not to ever feel a sense of oppressiveness, a sense of shortcoming, a sense of I'm not accomplishing what I ought to be doing. I'm failing at being the best sort of child, sibling, parent, professional, friend, uh, colleague, associate, employee, whatever, you fill in the blank. And as time goes by, honestly, it can transform into a subconscious sort of, and and I know this can sound a bit strong, but it's true, almost a subconscious sense of self-loathing. It's almost as if one possesses no feeling of self-worth. And here's the problem. The older we get, the more we tend to subconsciously berate ourselves. And this is a problem. It impacts how we live today. It detracts from the quality of life. And so we decided to create a resource to help get rid of this problem. Because it's, after all, a spiritual problem, not a physical problem. Um, There is no chemical that can actually do the trick. Oh, there are chemicals that can disguise the symptoms. But that's not anything real. Alcohol, uh, there are certain happy pills, there are drugs. Oh, you can certainly disguise the symptoms of that. There's no question about it. But ever so much better... To tackle the root cause rather than simply dull the symptom. Uh, yeah, you can anesthetize yourself with alcohol, there's no question about it. You can also anesthetize yourself with sex, by the way. Uh, easily accomplished, but no lasting value at all. Actually harmful. So how do you actually do something about the problem? Well, uh, it's called atonement. Now, I know that that sounds um, frighteningly religious and parochial, as in Day of Atonement. And funnily enough, the name of the resource we created specifically for this purpose is called Day for Atonement. Not Day of, but Day for. And if you go to the website, rabbidaniellappen.com, you will find a description of it. You can read about it. And you will see that for the huge investment of less money than you might well drop into the hands of a panhandler that accosts you the next time you go downtown in another one of America's delightfully free cities like Seattle, uh, you for less than you might drop into the panhandler's palm in order to hopefully dissuade him from assaulting you uh, for less than that, you could get a quick and immediate digital download of Day for Atonement. So head over to the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, where you will find a description of Day for Atonement. You'll also find everything else on the website. There's so much more, and uh, you can communicate with us. You can read back issues of Susan's musings, back issues of Ask the Rabbi, back issues of Thought Tools. You will also be able to read the comments that hundreds and hundreds of other listeners and readers have made, and uh, in most cases, the response. Right, and this this is what Susan and I often do for our relaxation. Uh, We get together with our computers, and it might be in some pretty spot due to the miracles of portable computing. And we'll sit sit down for an hour to enjoy one another's company as we respond to the comments that people make uh, after each thought tool, after each Susan's musings, after each Ask the Rabbi and uh, we actually enjoy, and we love hearing from people who tell us they enjoy reading our responses to their comments. So, everyone's happy, and so will you be if you visit uh, www.rabbi-daniel-lappen.com. Now, at this point of the discussion, I have to make a crucial distinction that will help clarify this entire conversation. Let me make this clear. The notion that my grandfather knows more about the Python programming language than my grandson does is ridiculous. My grandson is a whiz at coding. My grandfather would not have a clue what his descendant is talking about. But it is just as true that my grandson knows Much, much less about building a marriage or dealing with life's tribulations than my grandfather. And so my grandson knows more about coding, but the thought that he knows more about life and its struggles and more about relationships with spouses, that's ridiculous. So, what is the difference between coding and marriage? A whole lot, as it turns out. You see, there are two categories of information. There is information that is mostly physical, things like uncovering the nature of the atom, probing the core of the earth, finding out what is the makeup of wood and plastic and aluminum alloys and antibiotics and human DNA. Each of these things is more understood with each successive generation. With each passing generation, more information is uncovered. The younger know more than the older in all of these kinds of areas that have to do with the physical world in which we live. That's Category A of information. How about Category B of information? Well, this would be information that is mostly spiritual, interacting with human beings in all their incomprehensible vastness and variety, the nature of and the need for our relationship with God. This generally is something that each generation knows less about than the past. Young know less than old. So these are the two categories of information, A and B. How to get on with siblings, relationships with siblings. Should you get on with your siblings? Should you make an effort to get on with siblings? Is that A, physical, or B, spiritual? I think you'll get the idea. That's B, right? Pretty clearly. Um, Things about dealing with a disease. Yep, that's A. How about uh, psychiatry? Mostly B. In other words, the attempt to try and resolve spiritual malaises with chemicals and with drugs. the fact that they are dispensed by a person with a, a a degree on the wall of his office makes no difference. The fact is that many 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 things that fall under the heading of mental disorder are spiritual in nature, and dealing them dealing with them. While disregarding the spiritual impact um, is completely hopeless. It's completely futile. Um, using the methodology of information A to study the information B is like watching a disaster unfold in slow motion. Pretending that all so called mental disorders, can be resolved scientifically with no reference to the spiritual core of a person, the soul of a person, that's nothing but foolish arrogance. Similarly, using B to study A is at very best frivolous. Have you ever heard people talking about human energy auras, Uh, the spirituality of living in a geodesic dome, and so on and so forth? This is preposterous. Uh, These are two separate categories of information. A is scientific, physical-based. B is spiritual and, uh, for the most part, non-measurable in a lab. By the way, economics often called the dismal science precisely because it is not a science in the first place. Anything that has to do with how people relate to money, you're talking about how one spiritual entity relates to another spiritual entity. The attempt to turn it into a science and rename it econometrics, it's futile, it's laughable. And uh, this is why many, many presidents have expressed frustration at their economic advisors. I think it might have been Harry Truman who, or maybe it was Ronald Reagan, maybe both, said, I'm looking for a one-handed economist. I do not want an economist who tells me, on the other hand, um, because you can't, you can't possibly, if, if it were true, that all you've got to do is solve a set of equations in order to strengthen the economy or to um, make sure that inflation drops to zero, which is where it should be if government were honest and never is, Uh, it would be easily done. But economics is not in Category A. It's in Category B. However, and it's a huge however, there are overlaps and interfaces, and they are amazing and irresistibly fascinating, and I've spoken of them many times in older shows. Yes, there are interfaces between the physical and the spiritual, and uh, we've looked at them in the past, and we will look at them again in the future. The value of ancient Jewish wisdom is that it is just that. It's ancient Jewish wisdom. It's a millennia-long experiment of life meticulously recorded in all detail to enable us to measure contemporary trends and fads against a reliable account of how the world really works. One that indeed has been time tested for veracity. Now, occasionally, even with my access to ancient Jewish wisdom with which I've been so blessed, even then, I occasionally err. I make mistakes, I misspeak. With no excuses, I occasionally make a mistake. I'm not going to give you any explanations or excuses. Because you happy warriors, for real men, only performance counts. Will you please make a note of that? You know those three by five index cards you keep with you at all times in accordance with Rabbi Daniel Lappin's rule number 49? Well, grab one of those paper cards right now, and if you've never done this before, please write down, for real men, only performance counts. Not excuses, not explanations, only what you did or did not do. That's all. And that is simply a true reality of masculinity. It's a true reality of being a man. And so, in the hope of attaining those heights, I'm not going to give you an excuse for why I misspoke last week. I'm not going to give you an explanation. I'm just going to correct and apologize. Last week's show was called Find Your Way to God, Gold, and Greatness Using a Microscope, Never a Telescope. Well, 34 minutes into the show, I was talking about the world of cosmology and astrophysics, and I said, look, it's so vast and so huge that even the distances are incomprehensible. Right, when a scientist says to me, Uh, Something is so small, it's a tenth of the size of the thickness of a human hair. Okay, i got an idea. But when cosmologists say a light year, or if they say three billion light years, do you have any idea of what a light year is? A light year is how far light would travel in a year, traveling at 186,282 miles every second. So figure out how many seconds there are in a day, multiply it by 365, multiply that by 186,282, because that's how fast light actually really does travel in a vacuum, and you've got the number of miles, which is a huge number. And then, say, three billion of those miles. I'm sorry, you know what? Can I get a cup of coffee? Thank you. Uh, it's. It's. I can't deal with it. Anyway, last week, 34 minutes into the show, um speaking about this i inexplicably said light traveling at 386,000 miles a second um <clears throat> that is uh, not correct light doesn't travel at 386,000 travels at 186,000 miles a second no practical difference uh, both numbers are stupendous but there it is um the second mistake um is was was i think more more serious in a way because It reflected a failure of me to apply fully things that I do know and things I do understand. And here's what it is. I dismissed lawyers um, and I dismissed a majority of lawyers by saying most lawyers obstruct deals. And I explained why, Uh, you know, after all, if a deal goes wrong, the, uh, the principal in the transaction will blame his lawyer. If the deal goes right, the principal will make money and usually will do nothing more than pay the lawyer's fee. Uh, Well, first of all, somebody corrected me this past week and and I followed up with it and it turned out uh, there are actually many people who have such good relationships with their lawyers that they don't just pay the fee, they actually give them a share, just as a, as, as a almost as a gift, a share of uh, the profits from a deal that went well. In other words, acknowledging the vital role played by the, uh, the attorney. Uh, a more serious problem of what I said was just the implication that that's true for most lawyers. Look, I should have realized, and I should have known better, that as in every other area, if somebody's a bad truck driver, he's not going to spend a lot of time driving trucks badly. He's just not going to get hired to drive trucks. If somebody is a uh, a bad mechanic or a bad doctor or a bad plumber, he's not going to apply his trade successfully for very long. It's called reputation. It's called brand image. People find out. They don't participate. Friends, I should have realized it's obviously no different in the legal profession. Of course, it isn't any different. And to say that uh, the majority of lawyers obstruct deals is nonsense because, although clearly there are lawyers who do that, I'm pretty sure they don't get much work. But the lawyers who do well are the ones who make deals work, unless the deal is intrinsically fraud, in which case they do their duty by informing their principals that this is a bad idea and they show them why. Anyway, uh, that was a careless, it was a foolish and a regrettable error. And I'm not saying this, um, you know, sort of feeling bad for lawyers I slandered. I mean, I'm sorry about that. But uh, my main dismay is my own failure in not applying um, the, the same well-known standard to lawyers that applies to plumbers and drivers. Uh, and I know why it happened, by the way. It happened because I've listened to one too many bad lawyer jokes, I've listened to one too many uh, accounts of oh uh, you know this uh, this lawyer you know nothing worse than lawyers. Look, uh, I think there are far too many lawyers working in government. I think there are far too many layers of legal bureaucracy. I think far too many lawyers are coming out of law school intent on doing good in the world by going into public service. Look, that's all calamitous, but corporate lawyers, lawyers that work in the world of the private sector and work in business. You know what? The majority of them have to be outstanding, because otherwise they'd starve. It's as simple as that. And then I started thinking about lawyers I know, and uh, on the one end I could think to myself, well, you know, maybe that's a self-selecting group, but it isn't, because I meet people through a variety of different areas, many of whom just happen to be lawyers. It's not as if I'm particularly connected to legal groups. But if uh, if you know, I meet several hundred people um, in the course of any uh, of a big event I speak at, and a certain number of them come up and tell me that they're lawyers, and then I take a look at their card, or I look at it later, and I discover, hey, you know what? These aren't just lawyers; these are outstanding lawyers. And so uh, it's with apologies, friends, uh, I shouldn't have I shouldn't have done that. I was wrong, and I simply cannot adequately describe to you how profoundly grateful I am uh, to have listeners of the caliber of David and Adam, who are just two of my friends who took the time to write to me, pointing out last week's two errors. I so appreciate you both very much, as I do everybody who writes in, and sometimes people write in on our website at rabbidaniellappin.com. Other times people write in um, on uh, YouTube or anywhere else that they listen to this show. There are many, many platforms. iTunes, there are many places this show appears and many places that people listen to it. Uh, love hearing from you always. Um, I received a letter that I wanted to, to read to you. Um, i get a lot of these letters and i i mean to always put them aside to share a few with you uh, on the show i don't always manage to do that but uh, but here's one i enjoyed uh, dear rabbi i recently purchased your book thou shall prosper and i just felt compelled to thank you for writing it i am a 43 year old male factory worker from west melbourne in australia I felt for so long as if I was in a freight train speeding towards mediocrity, and that nothing could stop that dreadful train. That was until I decided to buy your book. I'm very glad I did. It is so difficult to find like-minded people to chat with about things like this. Most of them are also on that dreadful freight train hammering towards nowhere. That is why I resort to books like yours. I completed an accounting degree years ago due to all the knockbacks I sort of gave up. To be honest, I find accounting boring. I only did the course because most of my friends did the same thing. Thank you for lifting the veil from my eyes and allowing me to look at the situation from a different angle. I loved blaming everybody else, when really, I was the one to blame for my own dissatisfaction. My place of work is shutting down sometime this July. I'm excited about losing my job. Funnily enough, it's a blessing in disguise. I only stuck it at the last year due to the knowledge that I would be receiving a payout. Thanks to you, I now look to the future with great hope, excitement, and a desire to embark on a career which is meaningful. I will be moving back to the country of my birth, Croatia when my factory closes. It's a dream I've held on to for so long, and most likely I will get involved in tourism, something I feel I would greatly enjoy and get me bouncing out of bed every morning. Being a Catholic, I especially love how you relate scripture to prosperity. It enhances the message you are sending even more. I won't take up any more of your time. Thank you for taking the time to read this, and thank you for making a difference. Thank you for rewiring my mind, giving me the tools to change and the courage to jump off that dreadful train. I wish you and your family all the very best, both at work and at home. Thank you, Rabbi, for being a beacon of light in this dark world. Yours sincerely, and it's followed by his name. Now, I mean, obviously, the the letter makes me feel very good. It's gratifying. Uh, He speaks enthusiastically, about a book I wrote called Thou Shall Prosper, The Ten Commandments for Making Money. And uh, so obviously it could be read as if it were just nothing more than a marketing testimonial. And if that was the case, so be it. It's uh, it's a pretty good one. But it's actually more than that. Uh, there were all kinds of things in that letter that I, I picked up on that, that meant a lot to me. One of them, for instance, was that... Um, he said i wish you and your family all the very best both at work and at home and i think he might have learned that from me or from one of my works maybe not but either way i'm 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 tickled by that because you'll know that i always say that anybody who has fantastic family relationships and no financial worries is like incredibly blessed how much more can you ask for it's incredible and so I always, when inquiring about people, you know, how you're doing, I always inquire about at work and with the family. You know, are, th- are things good on both, on both ends, both sides? Um, when I sign off at the end of the show, I always, you know, say with family, with friends, with, with, with finances, uh, my four Fs, faith, family, finance, friendship. Uh, Those things are all all interrelated, and if they're going well, then indeed you are blessed. Um, I I loved hearing that uh, he's moving back home to Croatia. I think Croatia is is a place of opportunity. Not that Australia isn't, but uh, if he speaks both English and uh, the local languages... Um, tourism is a real possibility. Uh, There is growing tourism in Croatia. That is fantastic. So there are a lot of things about the letter I loved, and uh, I hope that you enjoyed the few moments I spent reading it to you. And that, my friends, brings us to the end of today's show, which was mostly devoted to why... Ancient Jewish wisdom is of value to you. Why I make that the complete, sole dominating focus of this show bringing ancient Jewish wisdom to you, making it accessible to people of every background or of no background at all. And the idea, once again, is that uh, if you lived for a thousand years, you'd actually become pretty smart. We all would. But since we don't, we need some way of compressing the wisdom of the ages ancient Jewish wisdom, best way I know of for doing that, speaking to elderly people, seriously talking to them, Uh, and look, and not every elderly person is worth talking to, but you will not have any trouble finding in your life orbit an older person well worth spending time with. Um, There is um, somebody we became aware of, we've never met him, he's in his early 80s, he's a rather remarkable man, I will probably tell you more about him in the next little while, Um, but he is a doctor who is shunned by his entire profession in spite of the fact that he was a highly and widely respected doctor in academia. Uh, He is rejected and shunned because he knows how the world really works and he's not embarrassed to say so. We are very much hoping to get together with him, my wife and I, soon. And if that happens, well, I'll be sure to tell you more about it. In fact, I might even try and persuade him to submit to an interview. That would be wonderful. But uh, all of that, uh, how the world really works, yeah, that's what we do on this show through the medium of ancient Jewish wisdom, a way of compressing the last 2,000 years and bringing it to you in a way that can allow you to make the right decisions in your life before it is tragically too late. That's it until next week, my dear friends and happy warriors. Thank you for being part of the show. I deeply appreciate those of you who make a little effort to spread word of the show, share it with other people. And I know you're doing that because the listenership does not grow by itself. It only grows through the actions taken by other people, namely you. So thank you. I appreciate that very much indeed. Uh, The excitement of the show and its financial viability all increase. Uh, when its viewership and listenership increases. So, thank you for that, and thank you always for your communications. I wish you all, until next week, a week of good times in faith, friendship, family, and finances. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.